0: How's it going, guys? I am Zeke, and I am Jake, and you're listening to the Cinema Side Show podcast, episode 160.
1: Uh, we gave it a little room to breathe there. I liked it.
0: Yes. Yeah, I know. A little, yes.
1: little slow introduction.
0: It was a, it was a little bit, bit, bit slower, a bit more contemporary, a bit more intimate, much like the yeah. film that we're watching <laughs> later in the show. Very
1: good. Very good.
0: Uh, How I'm are you, Jake?
1: You. Oh God, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh it's, it's been it's been a week i just spent the last two hours complaining to you about my movie. is true but um that's all right we're here to talk about um i was gonna say the week of a particular character in a particular movie but it was, it was probably more than a week yes that was definitely
0: more than a week yeah for sure yeah well speaking oh. of something we might be talking about later in the show no something we definitely are talking about later in the we show might be
1: yeah. Teaser. Uh, with our latest
0: director's corner jake do you have a trivia fact from the film of the week.
1: I do, I do. So, of course, we're talking about Jane Campion later in the show. And uh, I think most prominently people do know her for this film in the sense that it was the first film to win the Palme d'Or, at Cannes, to be directed by a woman, of course. Now, to be fair, it was shared with another director, I think Chen uh, Cage? Cage? It's K-A-I-G-E. I don't know how the I is affecting the name there. But, yeah, so technically, she, she did share the award. Of course, Julie... Julie uh Julia, Julia Decanu uh, won more recently for Titan uh, just this past year. So we're getting, we're getting a little bit more in there. Uh, but funnily enough, Jane Campion couldn't actually attend or receive the award because she was due to give birth. Yeah. So you got a little little uh, hint at her sort of female essence, I guess. Is a yeah,
0: well, the motherhood it. side, which we'll talk a little exactly, bit about. Speaking exactly. Speaking of that motherhood or maternal instinct... Yes. Um we actually are. Uh, my fact based around um Anna Paquin's flora who another quick side hustle fact uh never actually gets addressed by her name yeah, throughout the entirety yeah. of the film it's interesting um we we also don't know the name of the father of flora um, no. the illegitimate father in this film but it is in Campion's novelization just to add a little bit more to the director herself uh we find out it was uh, Ada's former piano teacher Which mm. Sort of uh, You know When we talk about The intricacies of the film It's kind of the Sort of the inverse Of what happens In the film
1: That is very interesting Because right And we won't get too deep into it Just yet we've got, a, we've got a whole half show To get through But Piano teacher It's almost like a I mean that uh, That's a relationship In and itself A teacher and a student uh, But yeah We can get into that mm-hmm. show, But no, no That is interesting And uh, Her performance is Fantastic but you're right. No. No name mentioned. No, very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But Zeke, I got to ask you. The poster behind you, 1100 films you must watch at least once in your lifetime. Now, no, this film's from 1993. Of course, it is eligible to be on there. We've been doing a lot of more recent films lately. Um, do you think this is on the poster and should it be on the
0: poster? I think it is and it should be.
1: Yeah, it is. And I also think it should be too. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a classic, through and through. Classic storytelling, classic. Narrative and, and exploration of things we'll get into. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think this absolutely 1000% deserves
0: to be on that list. So, Jack I know it's been a bit of a week for you <laughs> as you've headlined the show with that. I did, yeah. So, I'm guessing, unfortunately, you haven't watched too much in the last I've week.
1: I've watched neither. Nada. Not, not even any of um, Jane Campion's other films, unfortunately. Luckily, this is like our Sean Baker discussion, a bit of a two-parted discussion. So, mm-hmm. I have time in the next week to catch some more, of course, a little teaser there for what we're doing next week. But. Yeah, no, it's been tough. I mean, I'll, I'll mention a lot of it during the career update. Um, as you as you know, Zeke, I picked you up in my brand new car. Yes. Which is very nice, very simple. Your sexy. big red car. My big red car. <laughs> I moved from a blue 2012 Kia Cerato to a red 2019 Hyundai Scent Sport, which I'm very happy with. Got it for a good price, despite mm. the terrible marketplace for used cars right now. Um, no, but it's great. And the, the reason I actually mentioned that just, just part of my big hectic week, um, is that I have this. I don't know what form it's going to take yet. I Haven't told many people this, but I want to make some sort of like pseudo documentary, like goodbye video, to my Kia, oh. because I've had the I've had the car for you know, about seven years.
0: We'll, uh, see you again, be playing <laughs> over the top of it. Yes, exactly. But instead of two cars parting, it's just your car getting split in half. <laughs>
1: See, I could edit that pretty easily. Yeah. As well. <laughs> I got plenty of drone footage of the car from up top, so I can just insert it there. Instead of just getting squashed, <laughs> but yeah. And then I'm just, I jump out of the window. Like Wally just like yeah.
0: protrudes <laughs> it out.
1: Wally, it's a Pixar crossover. Yeah. Uh, but no, I thought, I generally thought about doing something like I don't know what form it takes. Again, pseudo documentary would be footage that I just have, like from a dash cam. Sometimes mm-hmm. I've turned it around, and I'm sure there's footage of us messing around in there. Oh, there's like,
0: probably some very inappropriate conversations yeah, that Yeah, I'm
1: sure. I'm sure there are. But, like, you know, had a lot of experience with that car. And I think that that's like, uh, you know, <laughs> we mentioned Titan a second ago, but not not to that extent of, like, intimate relationships with cars. Um, a little less messed up in that sense. But I feel like you do develop, especially your first car, you do develop a sort of relationship. You have memories associated with it, with sure. this sort of mechanical... When you grow up with the car. Yeah. I mean... 18 to 24, a, hmm. lot, a lot. I mean,
0: we that's both know it. Uh, yeah, and that's why Pixar made three films about them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So uh, we're off the Pixar, okay? Yeah. Please, we're off the Pixar. But um, I would love to do that at some point. But that—that that, I mean, that—that that is such an aside from things I watched this past week, of which there were none of. Still, you know what? I watched the two specials for Euphoria. So for those who don't know, season one is about eight episodes long, which I saw I think a year ago, over a year ago now. Mm-hmm. And then there were two specials to sort of bridge what is now season two, which is currently releasing each week. I for mean, sure. I think they're five weeks in now, so I just keep seeing it on my Facebook feeds. I rewatched, uh, I, I watched a recap of season one and then two specials. So I'm ready. I'm ready to jump into season 2 Just started. Yeah. I'm hearing some good stuff for it. I'm hearing some really good stuff for it, so... We should see, but other than that, Zeke, what did you watch in the last week?
0: Well, I started the fifth season of Peaky Blinders. Um, That's right. You said you were going to get back to it. Sixth season coming out. Uh, yeah, look, I honestly am very neutral at this point with really with, with Peaky Blinders. Uh, I, I tend to feel like it's the equivalent of a spiral. Every outside circle is you know larger and more in depth and. Whereas the further in you go into the centre, the the more shallow the circle gets. Um, And it feels like we're circling the same sort of themes every season. Um, I am hopeful, though, that this one will take a turn as the cast is definitely downsized. Mm. So, due to events of previous seasons. So, um, yeah. Um, seeing where that's going to go. The only film I watched this week was the new... You know, I think you brought it up last week on the show. I mentioned it was all? coming out, yeah. And I did indeed <laughs> watch The Tinder Swindler, which is Of all the, the films
1: I listed last week,
0: that's the one you gravitated the to. The Felicity Morris <laughs> directorial debut for a feature. Mm. But this, this is the thing I'll give you credit
1: for. I didn't realise it was a documentary.
0: Yeah. Um, it's definitely got the sort of... I'm gonna put it. I'm gonna put it in the sort of the operation, sort of Varsity Blues. Your mm. Fire documentary. It sits okay. in that category in the sense that it basically follows a swindler's sort of work. You know, and I think Fire is still probably the peak, uh, the the top of the mountain. This one's actually probably on the same level as I feel as as, as Varsity Blues. Mm. I, I think this one I like because actually I think this one's probably slightly better because it follows uh three women mm. particularly prominently two women um as this um as they sort of get driven into this uh rabbit hole with this man they've on Tinder yep. who they discover is a billionaire's son mm. and um as the as the film goes I think it actually has a very good first act and a really strong third act but it's middle it's sort of it's probably it's weakest it definitely mm. I think it it's necessary because they as they start to bring the press in and they these investigative journalists they have to go through how they sort of uncover um, how this guy has managed to successfully scam and it's one of those things that I was I was actually it, it provoked what I really liked about it is it provoked a really good conversation with with people that haven't watched it but when i was talking about it i was talking about it with quite a passion because as we find out by the conclusion of the film he's actually scammed estimate over 10 million dollars out of um out of women or people all across europe women are people too zeke no because it's not just (laughs) as we discover it's not just a romantic sort of seduction it's actually a platonic seduction it's a Like, he he does different things for different people, and often it's, like, one person funds the next person. So he ends up, like, constantly having someone paying for him so he can then continue this millionaire's lifestyle. So he's there dropping... con artist shit right there. It's (laughs) extravagant, but the fact (laughs) of the matter is, and he never stays in one country, so no country can pin him for fraudulent behaviour. And what is the most interesting thing between this or fictional depictions like Wolf of Wall Street is really how little time these guys get in prison at at the most he was pinned by interpol and he went to he was is he's an israeli man he went to an israel prison for 15 months got out after 5 wow and is now dating in 5 is, months 5 months wow and in wolf wall street he stays in prison less than 2 years
1: yeah and that's of course based on real events yeah. real people so yeah
0: yeah so it's like it's fascinating to me how like I, I think in in and then in even something like Catch Me If You Can, he only went to prison for like less than a year. I yeah, think it was, yeah. and it's like, but it was like I was like, wow, fraudsters really don't uh don't get long time long stints in prison. They get all these big dramatic threats that they're going <laughs> to be in prison for twenty, thirty years. But yep. most, and it was like he was da- apparently he was back to living this extravagant life with an Israeli model, and it's like. Yeah, he really has stopped conning. He really learned his lesson after <laughs> five months in prison. Like,
1: yeah, it's a hard five months, man.
0: But it was like that was that was a little underwhelming. I was like, what? But then I was like, hang on a second. It kind of makes sense because when you think about his behavior, apart from a couple of false identities and stuff, all these like people consensually give him the money. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's it's so a lot of it's a lot of lying. Yeah. But yeah, the technical the technical nature of it is like, wow, yeah. that is just like kind of horrible I mean, and it's the, really hurt yeah. these people's lives and you do see the the damage and there's a really cool like the third woman they introduce in the third act who after the story goes public yes we find is the is the current girlfriend of him and has been dating him for 14 months even though he's been dating multiple people she gets back at him and i don't want to spoil how but it is one yeah, of those big, dude
1: you've kind of sold me on this i'm not gonna lie
0: yeah it's a big gotcha and it's actually it did elicit a really positive like yeah, that's right. You should, yeah. you suck. I was like, that is awesome. But yeah, it, honestly, it was it was a lot of fun from her. I nice. mean, it was a really. It's just under two hours, so it doesn't overstay. It's welcome. It's not trying to. It's kind of like what. It's the same thing with Fire, except Fire's big O moment is just impossible to beat. like.
1: Yeah, Fire is one of the best documentaries ever made. Yeah,
0: I I authentically believe. Like when that. Day Zero hits, like. <laughs> They've created such anxiety in the viewer, yeah, the build
1: up is tremendous when
0: the when the shoe drops, it's just the best yeah when and, and yeah hasn't hasn't been beaten since, but this one definitely follows, and I would put that in the the that right that the same camp,
1: yeah, for sure,
0: for sure, I the Varsity News one
1: was pretty pretty lackluster for me.
0: I didn't mind it. Reenactments are a tough sell nowadays. it's almost like storytelling is better, I think, through. Um, pieces to camera and archival footage, particularly archival footage, which this one, due to its nature, is bountiful. Yeah. Because yeah. of obviously the dating aspects, the 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 public perception that needs to be put out on Instagram and Tinder. It's like there's so much archival footage of him going mm-hmm. to these extravagant parties and spending twenty thousand dollars of money that you know yeah, very yeah. early on is not his money.
1: Yeah. No, nah, uh, it's fascinating, and and that goes back to, you know, you mentioned, you know, Don't F with Cats, which, that ha- that was tied into this one, or am I getting that mixed up? Uh, so?
0: Same creator. Felicity right, Harris. gotcha,
1: gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember thinking, like, I was surprised by how entertaining the edit is for that, considering so much of it is just pieces of the camera. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with pieces of the camera, but, like, I think you kind of get spoiled, especially lately with documentary, especially the more, like, contemporary music biopics. You know, you got you got a camera crew following, you know, Billy Eilish for like two years, and it's like that. That's hard to beat, even though I don't think that's a great documentary as a sure. you know, as a documentary in itself. I might watch it again. I'm listening to more of a music, and it's like I might like it more because of that. But that being said, it's like that just helps so much because so much of the documentary is happening, uh, the story unfolding, and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily being told to you by the camera. But I remember Don't F Poor Cats. I was surprised at how effective it was. Considering they had that yeah. and maybe some security footage, and this definitely,
0: like that. yeah. This this one in particular, I'm I'm surprised. A story like this, like I think the documentary is great, but I'm really surprised. Like there haven't been some re- like a remake, like a like, like a, a, stri- yeah, a drama make right. of this film. Because I mean, you know, when you think of how well received something like Catch Me If You Can was received yeah, when it came out, great film, great film. Um, you know, and it's just a, it's a bit of a surprise that people like these sort of swindler films. And it's like, it would be really interesting to frame those swindler films from victim's perspectives rather than the swindler. Cause the swindler is often always the protagonist, yep. which in this yep. he's definitely not. He's a interesting, he's okay. painted in a pretty negative light pretty early on. Yeah. Um, and especially when they start playing like things like they've got all the WhatsApp access, they start playing voicemails like, messages that they send to each other, but, like, some of the stuff he's saying, like, threats, and he's spiralling, and it's... You really like when he hits rock bottom and he gets gotcha, (laughs) because he's a real piece of work. Yeah,
1: but then you look at Catch Me For Cans, like, Leo's character is so charming, and, Mm -hmm. like, you just... You you get swept up in that. Yeah. Um, And he is so likable, even though he is, you know, scamming people and doing all these awful things. Yeah. um yeah, it's interesting. But,
0: its I mean, you take the... the you, especially when you take that film explicitly, the person that it was based off was so much older. Like, he was, like, yeah. in his early, mid-40s when he did it. And he doesn't look charming or pretty or attractive. So Spielberg's gone and gone, I'm casting someone that you want to root for, a younger name. Yeah, yeah. And, and his scamming is not so much based on... I'm just trying to be in this for me and live this lavish lifestyle. It's I'm an immature teenager that doesn't yeah. Really it's understand. all fun and games. Yeah, yeah. the whole exactly. film is fun and that's yeah. very intentional. And when it so hits it's... its rock bottom points, it's more like this teenagers just run away from their problems. Yeah, and which is why the the perfect counter, the perfect uh, polarizing sort of viewpoint is is Tom Hanks' character, who's often mm. playing funner, more energetic characters, but in that he's straight laced. But yeah. it still means well, yeah. Like, yeah, of course. And it's such a moral compass, and it's such a banger film. Have to do it on the show at some
1: we point. We do, we really do. I think there's a nice do- more Spielberg do- love. Yeah, ah, we 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 caught up a
0: little <laughs> on Spielberg love lately, which this is, is true. good. This is true. We did well,
1: yours a couple of director corners ago, but for yeah. sure, that's it. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. Well, I'll I'll talk a little bit. I did. I mentioned that wedding live stream last weekend. It's now come and gone. Glad it's come and gone. Um, (laughs) That's all I'll say about that. Look, it's hard. It's generally because there's a lot of pressure doing live streams, Mm -hmm. especially for big moments like that. And like there are many technical issues, including 43 degree heat and laptops overheating. So you gotta do what you can in the moment. You don't have much time. But yeah, that's
0: that's the job. Maybe Um, uh, talk about it when it's a little less raw.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe, perhaps. Oh goodness. Well, the other thing we'll talk about, we were just talking about it a minute ago. I won't talk too much about it because it's not like revealed or anything mm-hmm. yet but um i did do a test shoot very a recently spoicy. a little spoishy um for a script i wrote gosh it might have been a year ago now their first draft. So the third draft that i'm on now is november mm-hmm. so it was not that long ago but um we did a bit of a test to to try out some effects mm-hmm. some uh, rain effects faking rain and it's exciting. That's all I'm gonna say about that.
0: It's very exciting.
1: Yeah, so uh we might hear
0: more from us about that fairly soon. That'd be pretty exciting. Fairly soon. But just yeah. gotta gotta tease it a little bit. Exactly, exactly. It's so well, like that knives out one one second teaser. Exactly.
1: That you gotta see.
0: Yes. It, well <laughs> it's
1: part of it they did Netflix did a sizzle reel like their twenty twenty two stuff that's coming out. Mm. And like it was like right at the end of that that a knives knives out two shot. Yeah, but That's, like, that's ooh, yeah. in the cinema.
0: You watch that in the cinema. You don't just That will that will be in the cinema. Of course it will. Yeah, and you and go and see it. The you don't watch it. You don't watch that on Netflix. No, no, no. You go to the cinema.
1: That was, I think, Knives Out was the last film I saw in Gold Class. I think. Really? I think so. Because obviously COVID happened, and I, I became a lunar person. <laughs> <laughs> and then, That'll do it. Yeah, the and then I went to event, I went to events for cats, ironically. Um, I went to events for. Um, Oh oh my god, how am I forgetting what it's called? It's film the Doco that I did. The shark one. Shark Cole. Envoy yes. Shark Cole, that's it. Um that was at events. so I caught it there. Otherwise I haven't been to events all that much. So um can't
0: remember the last time I was at events. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's great it's, great, it's great. Just it's far away. It's in Inaloo. It's quite a drive. Oh, it'll
0: probably be the Matrix twenty fifth anniversary screening.
1: Oh yeah, that we yeah. twenty fifth anniversary? No, that was twentieth 'cause that 20. was Yeah, that was 2019. Yep. We, twenty nineteen. We yeah, we did that was the first time I saw the Matrix. Was you in a cinema. Yeah. It's Wonderf- like
0: episode 37 or 38. Yeah, it's, a, it's around that. It's that around that. Echelons of episodes. Well, I guess yeah. it's probably time to move into our director's corner. I think but you're right. Yeah. Jake, who was the director? <laughs> and what are we watching? Of course, Zeke. Like,
1: this week on the show, we're talking about Jane Campion's The Piano.
2: Can you hear me? I'm not going to call him Papa. I'm not going to call him anything. Perhaps with time, you might come to like me. I'd like to make a swap. What for? The piano. She says it's her piano and she won't have him touch it. We're family now. We all make sacrifices, and so will you. I'd like us to make a deal. There's... Things I'd like to do while you play. If you're scared.
0: Long voyage from Scotland, pianist Ada McGrath and her young daughter, Flora, are left with all of their belongings, including a piano, on a New Zealand beach. It's that's got part. way more detail. but that's uh, what I was
1: going to say. That's the end of the logline. Huh? Um, that's a dope logline.
0: No, it's got about a, a, a ridiculous uh, extra part.
1: Oh, okay. Like a lot more detail. But we won't... Solve. We don't need that. We don't need, need that. that. That's a, that's a good logline for like next week on the show. Yeah. And then like this week on the show... It should
0: be more detailed, but I like,
1: I like I can, it. I can give a look. No, 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 too. no. We don't need it. Yeah. Well, I assume our audience has seen The Piano.
0: We'd hope so. This is the review for it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, It's good. I do know people that listen. They usually do listen to the first half of the show, and then if they haven't seen the film, they know they just duck out. Beforehand, so that's, I've, I've, that's we what, we've established our
0: structure. It's three years ago we established the structure. <laughs> we sat down and put it together. I know we we wrote it in our brains. There is a there is a you just heard the time when you're supposed to leave. Exactly. What, like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Go, what's the piano? What are you doing here? So this is uh, Jane Campion who is getting you know much like we talked about the award buzz when this film came out is yes. getting a lot of award buzz for a film we might be talking about at a later point. So we won't go too much into... uh,
1: Her first feature in in a long time, it turns out. Crazy. Since, let me get... I think it was 2009. I remember reading that. I was like, oh, crap.
0: Was that Bright Star?
1: I think it actually was. That might have been 2011, actually. Uh, Yeah, 2009. And then jumped straight to 2021, Power of the Dog. That's a leap. Wow. I mean, she did some shorts and some television stuff in between. But... That's a big jump of features, especially do something like the piano, which uh, am I correct in saying that we both saw for the first time in the last week? Yep. Yep. So you actually caught this quite a few days ago. I caught it earlier today. Um, It's great. Yeah. It's a very great film.
0: Yeah. I'm, uh, it was just one of those. I have it on DVD. And it was just one of those mm. DVDs I just found in an op shop for like two bucks. And I was like, well, this film I'm going to own because this feels like a film I should own.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I spent about twenty-six times that amount of money on the Criterion version, which is still on the way. It's but pretty I but be looking though. It all looks gorgeous, it's and cool. I, I got the dual disc thing, which I think is a four K disc and a Blu Ray disc. Oh. So I'm very happy about that. Look at my four K Criterion on the on the bench.
0: Yeah, it's a good film. It's a uh, <laughs> that's my review. No, that's um, our review. We're done. Goodbye. Uh, no, it's it's a very interesting <laughs> film. Like her style between the two films that I've seen from her. So what was is, the other one you saw again? I've seen the Power of the Dog. Um, oh, of course, yeah. Duh. Right. And um, yeah, it's it's very interesting how they sort of they do things like, and I'll obviously compare and contrast, you know, at a at a later date. But it's like it they're very interesting how they're paced and how they uh, her pacing is 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 quite slow. She's mm. she doesn't mind taking her time. Um. And, uh, I find this film quite intriguing because it's obviously, you know, it's when it's set, it's set in that, that early, I think, that early, I think
1: it's still the 19th century. Did I hear that somewhere? I believe it is the 19th century. could even be further back. Oh, the mid 1800s.
0: The so 19th century. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So obviously, you know, and it's set in New Zealand. So we're still in both in Australia and New Zealand's early colonial, you know, colonization days. Um, you know both countries were quote settled in the what the the late eighteenth century. so' hmm. re, they were definitely obviously still in that point of as obviously it's quite prevalent feature of this film too in yep. um in you know British Scottish people, people yep. uh expanding their territories and their reach hmm. and slowly starting to uh integrate and assimilate um New Zealand. Like Kiwi, like you know, obviously, like local Maori people into yep. their uh, their sort of co- colonized world, um, <laughs> yeah. Which is an interesting sort of uh, discussion in its own right. Um, but it, in terms of her directorial style, I think she's very literal with the camera a lot of the time. Okay, um, I think it's interesting how. Um, you know, this film is obviously very grounded in realism, and a lot of the metaphors and and subliminal messaging mm. are physical symbolisms that yep. occur yep. in the world. Um, and you know, we'll obviously dive into a couple of those shots. Um, you did write one of the funniest comments. Oh I my think. god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it's appropriate for the show, but it's uh, it was. I'll one figure of the out the
1: wording for it, but but we'll get it in here. Some um,
0: bit. <laughs> yeah, very literal messaging, um, and obviously there's more in there, but the obviously a lot of the things that this this film in itself, I think on its surface is is very simple and easy to comprehend.
1: Yeah, uh, that's what I was kind of surprised by as well. Is this how um I don't I don't know if it contains the right word, but it, it is a very simple plot to follow and I think I think there are, there are two ways you can look at this film. Mm-hmm. There's plenty. There are plenty of ways you can look at this film. I remember being really confident in my feeling that this is, a lot of this film is about miscommunication in a lot of ways. Obviously, dwelling far deep in sort of the, the feminist point of view that it takes, especially um, with Ada. But the other one and I kind of tiptoed around this of like, oh, is it is it? Uh, but but to what you were saying, I think it stands, it stands ground is ownership. And I think there's a lot of... I think mean, those two can go hand-in-hand in each other. But I mean, those are probably the two words that best describe well, the ideas. I'm already
0: liking where where this discussion's going to go because and it's definitely... Maybe this is sort of the beauty of her more profound films or at least, you know, obviously the one that's just come out. And then this one is... You've taken two things that I didn't really get from okay. the film. Okay, interesting. I, the two that I got were... Finding one's voice, yeah, <laughs> um, or expression, which I guess falls with miscommunication. Um, maybe for, sure, is, for sure, for so sure, an inability
1: the, to express oneself. Yeah,
0: the, maybe there's a correlation there. And sure. I, you know, I think there's a masculine reading in this too. Masculinity. Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, so and but yes, there is also like the feminist reading too. And I think maybe that's why, because it's such a well-rounded and easy to discuss film there's also like voyeurism and then scopophilia mm-hmm. yep, from yep. that sort of perspective. Uh but then that gets turned on its head too and there are probably counterpoints to that. How um you know we we do get quite a few film uh quite a few shots in the film that capture masculine nudity and voyeurism mm-hmm. and how and don't show them in uh like, flattering yeah, most flattering line yeah most flattering well they're, they're not the most flattering you know they're not something out of Charles Atlas's mm. sculpture of being a man you know uh they're they're very uh raw and real, and I think that that's that's quite an interesting conversation it's right there is a lot going on in this film for a film yeah. that is actually on its surface very easy to understand and straightforward yeah. to the point where lines are literal very literal, like literal mm. um even, like, the, quote, metaphors or, the like, the analogies they're making yeah, are yeah. also still very surface-level, almost sometimes a little, like, too overt, I think, uh, sometimes. Maybe.
1: I know what you mean, but... Like, I think... Mean, g- I mean, it's fine because I think that the, this film is very layered. You know, and like, like you said, there's a lot of interpretations you can take from it, and it's, like, I think each character represents that. Obviously, you have sort of the two male figureheads... That I think represent each end mm-hmm. of sort of the the struggle with masculinity in the sense that one character who, you know, it ends up making a lot more sense why we never actually see the romantic side of Sam Neill's, uh character. I think it's Alistair, his name, where I remember having an active thought in the first half of, it's weird I haven't seen him try and like romance um, Ada at any point and it becomes very clear at sort of the midpoint of the film or mm. you know, towards the second half. That there's a very distinct reason why we haven't seen that yet. And it almost becomes like the jealousy of seeing someone else who is a bit more overtly lonely and forward about sort of his sexual mm. desires. But he's
0: very, ma- like, he's almost toxically masculine, in the first part. And then yeah, exactly. There is definitely a crossover point, almost at the midpoint, that they both um, sort of flip mm. in terms of the way that they act, in terms of. Which is which is quite intriguing, and I think it actually does have enough. The literal at the play, when the yes. play happens, and Ada is literally caught between the two, mm-hmm. that it almost switches places from emotion. Like who's the quote more emotional, more in touch with their emotional right, side, yeah. which is intriguing in its in its own right. um... You know, it's funny. Even now, talking about the film more, I'm more of a fan of it. Talking out loud, and we haven't even talked about the piano playing. We've barely so gotten I'd... into it. <laughs> um, it Feels
1: like, yeah, no, but that's a that that almost is the perfect switch because that that's when we see, you know, it's when we see George become at, at his most vulnerable when he's sort of given up. You know, he just he gets rid of the piano, and you have it back. You know, you clearly don't have these feelings for me the way I have it for you. So get out of here. It's a very vulnerable, you know, questionable mm-hmm. stance for sure. Um, but that's when our sort of interpretation of him, not maybe in that moment, but when we realise that Ada maybe does have a level of attraction for him, that it shifts. And then, you know, for for Sam Neill's character, who, again, I actively remember thinking that whole time, well, it's interesting he hasn't succumbed to an emotion like that. He's very straight-laced, and he doesn't seem all that surprised when he learns she's mute, for uh, example, but it
0: flips over. It it is It is very interesting because... Uh, a thought that even just sprung to my head just then is yeah. um, how Neil's character has acquired her through mm. this, with this, through this marriage, through her family. Yeah. Um. He doesn't care for her, her quote condition that she can't speak. And, and almost, yeah, we'll and you know, well. from the moment where he's trudging through the woods, looking at her uh, photo, but then sees her and he feels like he's almost been, 19th century catfished um, to an extent. Oh, you're shorter than I thought. And it's like, well, how did you judge height from your pendant photo? But sure. Um, it's, you know, it's not like there was an inscription five foot three. Uh, but it's, <laughs> no, it's it's, be, it's, yeah, it's right. interesting because it's like he thinks that that's the be or end all and oh, she's just warming up to me. Um, but she'll love me no matter what. Yeah, Where well, this, this is
1: where the ownership part comes in. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, we can talk about like, the colonization and all of that in terms of the communities involved, mm. but then there is, like, ownership of the piano, ownership of her as a wife.
0: Yeah, and it's a, and the piano is definitely symbolism to that. And, and she, obviously, we find that her identity or her way of expressing her identity is purely through this instrument, an yes. instrument that he chooses to leave on the beach, and only at the point where it starts to benefit him i.e. when George asks him to bring the piano to the compound because yes. this will help cater, favour, and acquire more land for mm-hmm. him. Does he then do that? Um, mainly because, I think, from a masculine point of view, we we see very early on George uh, is quite intimidating yeah. to, to Alistair. I think he definitely has the machismo out of the two of them. Um, and I think that there's that mutual sort of oh you're asking for and you want to play you know I can I can help you with that yeah, um, yeah. sort of you know we see that sliminess come through but it's definitely at f- what I find fascinating is is that George extends it like oh you want your piano back you know you can do this for me mm. and she accepts that because she knows that one it's like at first you know I I found it very tough to get behind George at all because you of know, course, yeah. He's not a nice person. He forces... You know, he's very forceful... Yeah. And, and And he's very overly masculine, but...
1: And it's very clear as well when you start to realise, like, yeah, he never wanted piano lessons. Yeah. it's very clear very early on, especially and, when he doesn't want to even touch it.
0: Which is why it, it can be... I could see how people could be... There would definitely be a challenging view here to be like, well, is this a really positive film for mm. feminism and stuff? Because, you know, she falls in love with this guy that forces herself on at first. But yep, yep. I think this is one of those things that I really have to emphasize is Campion is just really graphing what it was like in 19th, the 19th century yeah. colonial times, particularly down here in, in New Zealand and Australia. It's, it's a rough place. It's not, it's not reformed society with pro- like pro- progressive 21st century views. Mm. Yep. And that's definitely for worse now as we can look back on that, but we also need to understand that that's exactly what that was. So for him to sort of have that bargain, we can see that she grows to admire him for that because he's willing to give up because he's clearly holding her physical beauty and even her emotional and artistic beauty to a point where he's willing to be like four keys to simply see her shoulders or his arms. And it's like we think, oh, well, that's... It's,
1: yeah, which is in itself such a great, like, visual... Um, for me, at least, it was such a subversion of expectation because it, the simplest thing of, like, bargaining keys, I was like, oh, that'd be a cool, like, visual thing to, to take us through the rest of the story is seeing the keys slowly being like, taken off the piano, which I know doesn't really make sense. Um, but that came in the form of, like, her clothes slowly coming off and sort of slowly showing more skin throughout the scene. And I was like, okay, that's a cool little subversion there was like you're still doing the visual storytelling and development yeah but even though it's not coming it's coming through the bargaining but it's coming through the the clothes as well um and you couldn't do that so much in a contemporary setting because even just the amount of layers that she would be wearing and i know it's like that's kind of an obvious thing to talk about but i remember um, watching a video specifically with holly hunter where she talked about that one of the main things for her to get in character was to put that outfit on because Mm. there's so many layers and it's so restricting even to her throat which helped with the non-speaking of course um but i just i thought that was a really interesting visual yeah and
0: trick. i think it's like everything though the grounded realism is there like she doesn't just when it's time when you know the corks out of the bottle and they do begin like getting incredibly intimate with one another Yeah. It's not like the clothes magically now they've decided they'll easily come off. No, it's clunky. It's a bit, it's not romantic. In fact, we see most of it through a peeping Tom hole. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not romantic or Hollywood. It's, it's grounded in realism. And I think that that's really important for Campion in her direction and what mm-hmm. she wants to do with it. And it's, it's sort of like, it's one thing that leads to another, like, I think a really important point that I brought up, even with my trivia fact, is that we don't know who the father is of her child, played by Anna Paquin, who this is her feature debut. And Um, I think she
1: won for this. She's like the second youngest actor to win an Oscar with this film.
0: And, you know, it's big year 93 too, because it's like, there's some big things that came out in 93, right? Well,
1: especially in like, not that I don't, this is definitely not Miramax, I'm pretty sure, but in the Miramax era of like indie filmmaking you had Pulp Fiction win the Palm d'Or the following year mm-hmm. so yeah huge time for indie filmmaking
0: yeah and I think it's one of those things that it's like so there's that clear level of, of there's that um, the only real way someone in her stature in her position in society in quote high society to have another husband was to literally ship her to the other side of the world mm. to a fringe colony these colonies that are desolate to say the least. I mean, they walk around, and to avoid the mud, they walk on planks of wood. Yeah. <laughs> um. They all predominantly live in huts. Like we, we need to grasp that. Like even the, you know, Alistair and his family, who are this relatively, they're only economically beneficial relative to the microcosm of, of New Zealand. Like, sure. yeah. They probably aren't very wealthy back at home, and that was actually what it was like to live in Australia up until the 1970s. and, and But th- that's I assume the choice that
1: that character makes, is sort of that capitalistic venture. Exactly. To put themselves in this environment where they can rule and trade land and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's, it's interesting because it's sort of like... So clearly, you know, when it's like, oh, well, then why does she succumb to, to George? I, I think that there's an element of of understanding there, but... You know, there is that promiscuous, lonely, physical need for affection and love that lives yeah. in that fringe world, and um.
1: And Alistair I, wasn't giving it to her.
0: Yeah, and she, you know, it's clear that they, you know, they he obviously overtly being the man, being the masculine, being the the obviously the one, the less intelligent one. He yeah. can't read. He's more primordial in his and, way and that, about
1: it. That just reminded me. I'm glad you mentioned that because she has this big. Uh, I love the idea as well that she has a very childlike mind with these things, and I'll get into why in a moment. But the tangent that she froze, or the, the tantrum, yeah. I should say, uh-huh. um, you know, she's throwing the when Alistair and, first says that. Yeah, when it's when George it's first brought it. up, and one of the things that that um that is if uh, Flora translates. Is like, you know, he can't read. And he's yeah. like, that's used as sort of like he's an an insult. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: It's like, so they both make very uh, polarizing judgments of each other's characters. She perceives him as like a, just a, a, an idiot, an imbecile, mm-hmm. a, a, a simple, toxic man. And for the first part, she's proven right. Um, but then we see him touching more his more intimate side. Like he, tri- you know, that sequence when he's, you know stark naked and he's moving around the piano but he's cleaning it with his shirt like there's that value there and it's like obviously there's the symbolism of of that want and desire but really also we see the perception of how he sees her as almost and this instrument is her like is a part of her identity yeah and that really gets phoned home in in more dramatic later scenes (laughs) But it's like, that's that, the first that's time the we first get to hit, see, yes. oh, he sees more than just this object of physical desire. He doesn't just see this petite, attractive woman that he's trying yeah. to get more. No, no. Because it's, it's sees... an inanimate
1: object, you know, inanimate to the best of its description, that, yeah, you're right, is an extension of Ada.
0: It's her voice. Yeah. It's literally her voice for the majority of the film. They make a, They make even a habit. I, one of my favourite lines in it is, is the first one, when it's her narrating, but it's, it's not what. It's only what she thinks her voice sounds like. It's not actually her voice. Yeah. It's a, the first line is well, this is what I think my voice sounds yeah.
1: like. Yeah. Well, the the fact that it's such like a childlike voice mm-hmm. or such a young voice, um, it, that to me that was the first hint that there was like a stuntedness to her, and there obviously is a stuntedness, her in the sense that, um, you know she she's mute and doesn't speak, and there's there's things I really want to talk about that in particular, especially how people react to that, um but yeah the, the even like throwing the tantrums and and just the way she moves sometimes especially when she's in like physical altercations is very childlike which mm. i thought was quite interesting to to show that mm. um but the other thing I, I i will talk about that with like her muteness and her voice and it's cool because we don't we don't see a lot of representation of that uh on screen i think the other one that I'm thinking of right off the bat is Shape of Water, a much more recent example. um, Yeah, it's not deafness, which
0: is like, you know. Yeah,
1: which is because she she understands and hears everyone around her and she communicates through sign language. And what I actually realised was a very custom sign language that only the two of them, and I mean them as the performers, actually knew. I don't know if obviously it's in the script what she's signing particularly. Probably Mm -hmm. not really. I I feel like that's something that Jane Campion would support is these two actors sort of making their own language up, in yeah. a way. Um, but the fact that that is custom, and the reason it would be custom is because there was no like universal sign language uh, in New Zealand at the time, or, or probably anywhere, I would imagine. But the fact that, the the yeah, the piano is her voice, that is her mode of communication, which goes back to what I said about miscommunication, that's what this film's about, um, in particular how Alistair doesn't understand the people that he's bossing around, like, literally doesn't understand the language of what they're saying half the time. Um, but then the reaction people have to her muteness is um, not, not fear, but they perceive her as dumb. You know, and there's literally that line. I wrote it down, I write it, but there's something along the lines of, you know, I can't imagine a fate worse than being dumb. And of course the response is, oh, being deaf. But it's like, that's how they perceive Ada as someone who's dumb. Mm. And that's almost used it's used against her in this film which is such a shame but it it speaks to the especially the time period of women almost not having a voice or a voice being heard um in terms of the gender divide there but if you can compare that to something like and i'm going to pull out a video game reference here so forgive me audience but something like portal and portal 2 where the protagonist shell is mute and actually inadvertently creates fear in the antagonist who's a robot Mm. But you can tell through the dialogue exchange, well, not even exchange, just like the monologues mm-hmm. that the character Gladys is giving, that she's afraid and doesn't understand how to deal with a human that's mute and is almost intimidated by it to an extent, which is such a fascinating road that is the opposite of what this film takes. Yeah. This film, everyone else around her just- considers her dumb.
0: For a quick history lesson. Yes. Um, according to it. wikipedia.com. Okay. That's super. <laughs> um, universal Sign Language first popped up in 1951 and wasn't developed until
1: 1973. Wow. There you go. And if you watch something that The Professor and the Madman, you're like, wow, I didn't realize dictionaries didn't exist that long.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which sort of makes that, like, obviously a universality. Now, obviously, it says sign language to send back as early as 2,000 years ago. So it's like, but like you said, it's very much dialectal. It's like mm. only only certain cultures know certain things or only certain partnerships knew certain things. So um, yeah. the fact that Flora, um, mm. or Anna Paquin's character, is the vessel for, for Ada's um, expression of language, yep. at least in the first half of the film, they make a key point of isolating the two characters mm. um, because the expression comes out in other parts, like in... Uh, playing the piano or physical intimacy. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's that's interesting how music becomes transcendental language, intimate touching becomes very symbolic and transcendental in yep. its meaning, whether that's the relationship between George and Ada or when they're engaging and we have peeping Alistair outside.
1: For, um, for, for dog licking his palm well, at the exact
0: moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> As a, That's cinema. That is cinema. Or even the the child perception of it and the follow-up. Yes,
1: the Florida Project. I very much compared it to the Florida Project. The child perspective of what's happening to their parents slash adult yeah. without them fully understanding what that is.
0: What I like, what I find interesting with that, um, how they make how... How they, how they make Anna Paquin clean the trees is just one of the funniest things. <laughs> so, but it's, um yeah, it's, it is, it's that perception there and it's, it's interesting the level of uh, how even Alistair's character, and now we have to give props, Sam Neill's performance is, is fantastic in this. And I do think Harvey Keitel's great in it too. But oh,
1: he's what I, I was shocked because like, when I think, it, I'm like, oh yeah, Tarantino.
0: That's yeah. kind of like what I think and then,
1: yeah, I didn't realize how sort of soft he was going to be in this film hmm. in a lot of ways.
0: I think Tender. for for me though, yeah, it's definitely Neil that steals steals the show out of the two. Um, okay, particularly in the more volatile scenes, he is <laughs> like. You, it's interesting you brought up the childness in in Ada. I think almost all three of the adults have child moments or moments of immense immaturity sure, or sure. ineptitude to deal with their emotional vulnerabilities. Um. So, and almost tantrums, all three of them have tantrums to the point where, like, Cartel's character can't see her or it makes him sick thinking that she doesn't think, like, he's almost irrationally in love with her. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, like, a teenager who's puppy-loved. Don't call me out like that, Zeke. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Or Neil being unable to deal with either sexual intimacy or the fact that he can't have her so no one can have her. Yeah, and how he tries to compose himself after that moment of pure red line fever mm-hmm. in the rain, which gonna talk about that scene soon. Yeah, um, or like you said, when she gets told she has to give him lessons and is acting out like a child, chucking a tantrum. Yeah, um, it's really interesting that it almost feels like Anna Paquin's Flora is the most mature sometimes.
1: <laughs> no, it's a really good point. That I mean, that's true. You're right. All three of them sort of have. Moments where they, they succumb to their emotions in, yeah, what you would think of as a very childlike manner. And
0: I think that that's, that commentary is almost showing, and it'll be interesting when, you know, in comparison um, with other films, because I think what she's doing there is she's showing that, yeah, adults can act like children. And I think Florida Project is a fantastic example to bring up, mm. and even Red Rocket to an extent, because I think Sean Baker does do a similar thing with the way that he makes older and more mature characters act immature and and sure, childlike yeah. um in realistic settings cuz um often i think that, that 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 does get lost sometimes in films um that this sort of I, I think it's really interesting with like things like the the shadow puppet theater and the puppet yeah. theater show which is all done by adults acting childlike but are they performing for a bunch of children no no they're performing for an, a bunch of other adults mm, yeah so what's that saying necessarily um and again
1: that... that miscommunication of like the natives not realizing what like a performative players is and freaking out with the uh <laughs> with the near violent goes. So that's great well it's great build up because they show the scene where they practice that and obviously this is quite early in this community for theater and stage production so like mm-hmm. the idea of casting shadows as part of a stage performance I like that being sort of a foreign concept, and her freaking out that he really is going to chop her hand
0: Miscommunication's off. Miscommunication
1: huge. Yeah, but huge. then yeah, but then it applies to its audience, who bloody storm the stage because they think something bad's about to happen.
0: And it's interesting because it's like I really do feel like calling it the piano is is the most accurate depiction, because only up because until the a final moments, it. no, well, it's <laughs> more the fact that it's the only time we ever get clear, coherent communication. Between the characters and the audience, I find. Like, yeah. The first time we're introduced to Ada playing the piano, we see the comfortability, the euphoria she gets from playing it, but we see the calmingness it brings her daughter. Um and obviously we're seeing it predominantly through Kaitel's perspective that mm. this is, you know, just as much of a foreign concept to us. But it's also showing the disjointedness he's had from in, being in touch with an emotional side. Because out here on this fringe developing rapidly well slowly developing Mm. colonized world out here on a on a fringe settlement at the time of the uk empire it's more about survival and just getting day Mm. by day and base level instincts are the thing that you know makes you sustainable because and i think that that's why the piano is such an instrument for him opening up his emotional Sort of side and and letting that back out as we find that he's ran away from home from what was a wife that he had back in Scotland too, mm-hmm. in an earlier scene when he's talking to some of the native Maori people, and it's not just i mean it's also it's also the bane of Ada's existence too because it you know it leads to what she believes is the only way of her communicating or the only way of her identity and without the ability to play said piano. She feels robbed of that. and yeah. only in in the dying moments do we see, you know, sort of a a new lease on life mm. through different communications of emotion.
1: Well, well, that's it because you see the piano, and it's like, you know, knowing people who play the piano and how you know how very careful you got to be with those keys. Like it just it clenches your soul when you see people like slapping the keys hard and not understanding sort of the petiteness that you have to go through it. But, mm-hmm. but even without Slamming that, an axe into it. Exactly, yeah. But even without that context, the film does it. So just the way it frames it and like the importance that she has to it when other hands are touching it or playing it or moving it. And you're right, an axe goes through it and it's like this is the... It is the connective tissue or the tether to her and it does go on that journey where eventually by the end, even though it's something that she spent an entire film trying to to maintain and keep is now something that she says is um what's the word she uses by the end not cursed but spoiled in a way i can't remember mm. the exact word
0: that particular panel uh piano yes yes yeah.
1: exactly but um and that whole sequence of just i guess like rebirth like ascending mm. back from the water i mean that's visual that's symbolic storytelling right there but is this a good time to jump into the ending because i have some questions some questions about the ending
0: so the what, the, the metal finger?
1: The metal finger, yeah, exactly. No, well, here's the thing, because I I feel like I, it was a very clever midpoint to like, oh, she's got the piano back. But now now there's this other thing that's like uneasy and unresting, and it's like the attraction that she actually has, you know, for George. But it felt I felt like I was kind of losing the plot a little bit in the second half, and especially with the ending where she kind of flips on the piano and decides, oh, just just cast it away. And then she almost she has that beat where she sees her foot stuck between the rope, and to me, that's almost like choosing. Okay, she's gonna let this happen. She's almost choosing mm-hmm. um, to to drown, and you know, through not divine miracle, but the way she in the voiceover she describes it, it's sort of like the decision was chosen for her to keep living, to keep surviving, and it felt a little too neat the ending
0: oh, that's interesting
1: yeah i don't i just uh,
0: i uh, yeah look i think it's it comes back to that at first it can perceive it as, a, as a neat simple ending but i think the importance of the film is is like you said if we we tie it to the communication or the miscommunication mm. sort of concept and theme i think it's important to take that because her, what she discovers with her affirmation for for George, um, is a a way of communicating that's not through the piano, and that and that comes in the way of of physical uh, intimacy. Sure, and yeah. she's maybe just trans, uh, forming that from her physical intimacy with the piano to uh, another person, a person that sees her as more than just. Um, just a, a pianist or or a mute pianist, but yep. a, as 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 a human being, um, and I think that that moment when she goes into the water, I'm like, well, you could quite easily dip to black here, but the fact that you know she decides to let the piano go, let that that idea of she's only I you know only identifiable or a person because of her connection to that, you know, that symbolic connection to that is. It's sort of what she's doing in that sequence, mm, and why okay. she, you know, she goes on to relocate and marry George and become a piano teacher. And I think that's what I, the I metal... think it's
1: that, and in particular the fact that she's like learning how to speak again. And mm. I think, to be fair, I think the whole journey of this, my thing, because the main thing for me in terms of the miscommunication, her mm. not having a voice and it being part of the piano, and I get the identification she shares with it. But to me, that whole concept was just a giant metaphor for the lack of agency that women had in this time and in a lot of ways still have.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's why I think there's a lot of timeless elements with this from being released in 93, but taking place over 100 years prior. Of course. But for me, I was just kind of expecting a super downer ending where she is tethered to the expectations that are set around her and the fact that she doesn't have her voice. And the fact that she doesn't have her voice has put her in these situations well I shouldn't say it's put her in these situations it's sort of this thing that where she feels defeated and obviously with George that sort of ends differently where she does have an attraction to him um but I think I think it felt like the film was leading towards a darker grimmer message that it felt a little surprising that it kind of ended on such a nice note where yeah she is a teacher she's the metal finger well tell me what you're going to say about the
0: metal finger I think the metal finger is just, like, that reconnection to that world and, and the fact that, okay. um, you know, even in a time like that where it seems so desolate that, you know, I think that this is the key part of the lion where she's, like, she's had her wings clipped mm. and not chopped off. I think this is the difference. When a bird gets their wing clips, so they can't fly for a little bit. Sure. But eventually their feathers grow back and they're able to fly again. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the, the metal finger is very much um, sort of her way of being able to teach again or be able to to express and fly again. She may not be able to play as good as she used to, but she's found meaning in teaching people.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. And, That's fair enough. Um, you know, another part of her ending monologue is that, you know, people see her as the, the quote, the, the town freak or the village freak. And she's okay with that because sure. it yeah. means she's avoiding people. And mostly just gets to live with with George in solitude. And I feel like she's only learning to speak solely for her child and and for for George, really. Like, she's not doing it. She's not doing it because she's lost agency and she needs to conform to society. She's doing it because she feels like that's the next step in her life. I guess so. There's a self-agency there, not a reliance, I think, on societal norms yeah. Of what society expects of her. I mean She's not going to be like, for example, Alistair's mother, who's very traditionalist.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean at at the end of the day, the film's nearly thirty years old. I watched it this afternoon, so I'm not gonna see him be like, the ending doesn't make sense. I mean I, <laughs> just, <laughs> I just I need a Sorry, time I feel like I've be very
0: compatible with you on this film. Like you've been like you've made a point and I'd be like no 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 no
1: no 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 well it, it's it's because like I just I think that was that was my main point. Is that I just felt like the message was leaning towards a darker theme, and I was just surprised that yeah, how the low point does
0: come at a very late point. If the low point is her getting a finger chopped off, it comes yeah. very late. There's only like ten, fifteen minutes left in the film. I
1: guess right? so. I mean, yeah, it's pretty late, second act. And I mean, if that is really the low, low point, I guess it would be having your finger chopped off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's probably a good place to put it there. But yeah, it's a no, long I, second act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I think the structure's one of them like I said, I think mean, the first half of this actually I know you talked about Jane Campion's films being quite slow and I've heard that Power of the Dog is a very slow film. Um uh, but that being said, watching this, I thought I was riveted by what was going on. the the, the slow relationship that was developing, especially between Ada and George and, mm-hmm. and how that all progressed. And like I said, I think I think it became a little less clear. What I was looking for in the second half, but I think that speaks to the fact that the discussion we're having today is so multi-layered, and that there's so much to unpack with this film that you know I I can forgive it for not being super super sharp, you know, eighty minute runtime, and like oh here's the theme. It's like no, there's many 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 themes. Mm. Um, so you know I I'm not gonna sit here and pretend like oh the ending makes sense. This is my initial reaction for sure. Um, but I think that's I think that's a perfectly fine.
0: Address. Would you like to move into highlight scenes, buddy? Um, you got anything yeah, else you let me, just,
1: let me just check what else. I think one, the one line I really liked in particular. This is actually. So I messaged you while watching this because I was <clears throat> I was watching a YouTube rip since I'm still waiting for my Criterion. Mm-hmm. I paid fifty five bucks. All right, I'm allowed to watch a YouTube link that they what didn't. What are you doing? Why are you biting me? I know. All right, what's going on? And leave me alone. It's a great, it's a great quality uh, video as well. But um, I was watching it, and it, it specifically got to the sign language where she's responding to to her daughter asking, you know, why she never got married. And I wanted to double check with you, and that's why I messaged, you, "Oh, are there meant to be subtitles for the sign language?" Uh, to which you replied that w- there weren't any on the DVD. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, it's probably a probably a safe bet. There's not meant to be. Um, so I actually played it again and, and focused on the gestures she's making, which, to my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, was she's essentially. Um, chucking herself in chains if she got married or she would be suffocating. Mm. Um, which I thought was a very clever detail to include. But um, the relationship she had prior to the one that was essentially a forced marriage. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very interesting to include in there. Yeah. Um, but that, that wouldn't be my highlight scene, per se. I mean, my highlight scene is a very subtle one, but I want to throw it in there, is quite early on when there's the storm, you have um the daughter telling the story of like this is what happened to my dad and the and you know the, the thunderstorm this is why she's mute um which i think technically that story doesn't align with the dialogue or the monologue in the very first scene if i'm mm. incorrect she says something about not being able to speak since she was six yeah does that line up with the story the daughter was saying uh i can't remember am not 100 sure on that one because it was talking about like her and the partner or the or the maybe that, that was the a, piano but that teacher. could also
0: maybe be one of those things that maybe maybe has that inaccuracy of the the translation between the sign and potentially and the yeah. because remember the only vassal of her actually communicating is like this eight year old girl yeah. so it's not like her vocabulary is probably as profound or intellectually uh, adept as someone who's a fully grown adult,
1: yeah. Plus, she, she actively was telling like fake stories mm-hmm. along with what we seem to be yeah. real stories. So, so there's a bit of that as well. But during that scene in particular, when they're they're getting the the photo outside instead of a because a wedding ceremony, mm-hmm. they get the photo, and then she runs in and looks outside, and you know we can assume she's thinking about the piano that's probably out getting wet. I know it's in like a cargo crate, mm-hmm. but even so, and it cuts to the reverse shot of her through the window, and we hear the music burst to life, and. It's a neat little trick. It's something that, like, Miles Foreman did for Amadeus, where a lot of the characters would be hearing non-diegetic music mm-hmm. as they're reading sheet music, and it's sort of a way into the character's headspace. Very similar trick, what they do here with Ada, which I just thought was very nifty. It was a very yeah. clever direction right there for Miss Jane Campion. But, mm-hmm. Zeke, what is your highlight
0: scene? I think the it's piano? the original beach playing scene with Ada. Oh, yes. It's a sequence that's probably the strongest choreographed sequence in it from where we get to hear her first play a complete number and we get to see it predominantly from like harvey cartel's perspective Ada's you know playing and flora's running around and mm. being very much like a seven or eight year old and it's just an excellent way of capping off what you would probably say is the first act the real call to action possibly yeah or at least uh the introduction to what would eventually be the call to action um it it's just a fantastic sequence of, of camera work and you know the waves are crashing or they're moving between and playing. It's almost yeah. like a music video, <laughs> a nineteenth century music video. So <laughs> there you go.
1: Yeah, no, well, that's a great pick, and I love the iconography of just like all their stuff on the beach and them lonesome or in the tent or just the piano by itself, which I'm pretty sure that's the main mm-hmm.
0: poster shot.
1: Um, just. Just wonderful. Yeah, it's fantastic.
0: No dramas. Well, the piano is, I don't know, is it out on any streaming platforms, Jake?
1: It is not. That's why I jumped on YouTube. Well, I'm pretty sure you can rent, buy it, but there's also someone just uploaded it.
0: So if you're feeling a bit cheeky, go check it out on YouTube ASAP. Exactly. Or get Picnic
1: at Hanning Rocked. Oh, yeah, exactly, before that goes away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But then you have DVD as well. Like, you watched it out of the Criterion, so that's a very recent drop. There's only a few...
0: Like a week ago, maybe that released. Yeah. So a uh, good so time wide around. out and wide release. Speaking okay. of wide release and streaming mm. platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week?
1: Actually, very very little, Zeke. On the streaming end, you got Tall Girl Two on Netflix, which oh god, why is, is, is that's all I have to say about that one. You have a Quiet Place Part Two coming to binge. So have you? You have binge, do? I don't. No, No. okay. No, okay. Nor have I seen Quiet
0: Place Part 2. Well, I
1: was going to say, yeah. Well, that's on a binge. I think it might already be on Paramount Plus. I'm not too sure, but you can check that one out. And coming to Apple TV Plus this week is The Sky is Everywhere, which sees a 17-year-old music prodigy struggle with grief following the loss of her older sister. Now, if you feel like going to the movies this week, because I don't even know where we are with COVID anymore. What's going on? Is it (laughs) safe? Is it not safe? Apparently, we're opening up. Yeah, I'm very glad that the country Australia, not WA, but the country is opening up, and we're actually getting much softer um, isolation uh, rules. Which is, I'm, I'm glad that's going. To be fair, I got my booster yesterday, so I'm, I'm in a very privileged position.
0: Getting mine Thursday.
1: There you go. We're going to be triple vax boys Mm. on the podcast. So maybe, maybe it's a little bit of that. Fifteen G. 15, 15G. Well, it's 5G uh, for one, right? So, I know. I could have done with 5G at that wedding live stream, but anyway, we're not going to yeah. talk about that. Could have used about
0: 15 degrees less.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, even then, whew, there's still a lot of sweating. But if you do feel like going to the cinemas this week, you have Death on the Nile, uh, which sees multiple cancelled celebrities like Army Hammer, Gal and Latithia Wright accuse each other of murder on a couple's idyllic
0: honeymoon trip. I'm sure so, the cancel Culture would love to be on that boat.
1: I know. <laughs> yeah, they could just murder everyone, exactly. <laughs> um, Zeke, are you excited for this?
0: Look, I watched the first... I remember... I think I saw the first one on a plane. It definitely feels like a plane kind of film. Like the film that you You mean watch. like the
1: original? What, what, which one are you oh, talking the, about The here? new... Like the the Orient on the Express. The
0: Orient on the Orient Express oh. one that came out in 2016, 17, 18. Yeah, not the Polar uh, Express. No, no, no. And look, it was fine. Um, like I said, it was a... Very much, I put it in the airplane movie category where, say you get on a 10-hour flight, you got to watch four movies. Yeah. Easy one to watch on, a, on an eight-inch screen. Um, <laughs> it's while, like Michael
1: Scott's plasma TV. While you're hearing office. that
0: airplane <laughs> noise. Yeah. Oh, no, that's part of the movie, Zeke. Oh, okay. That's always part of the movie. Yeah. So,
1: is this a coincidence?
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> i probably, honestly, I'll probably go see it. I have a couple of people that want to go see it. Because oh, they well, like those kind of whodunit. I love a it. Yeah, for like, sure. I'm a sucker for it. Um, I like it when it plays with the tropes, but you know, mm. we did our Knives Out episode, so you go check that out. We did a
1: while back. Oh, what a great time. I, lo- I love Knives Out. This is getting a lot of shout outs this episode. It's a lot of
0: love. Very comparable to The Piano. It's great to have Ryan. <laughs> I was at a Disney quiz night the other night and they asked yep. who directed episode nine, and I went, What? What film? <laughs> film <laughs> doesn't it? exist. What is,
1: what's episode nine? What's
0: episode nine?
1: Uh, Ryan Johnson made the last great Star Wars film. Let's not let's not delve into that deeper. Blacklight sees Travis Bickle, <coughs> sorry, Travis Block, a shadowy government agent who specializes in removing operatives whose cover had been exposed. Uncovers a deadly conspiracy within his own ranks that reaches the highest echelons of power. That's the first time I've ever seen echelons written before.
0: That's crazy. It seems echelons.
1: E C H E L. Yeah, wow interesting marry me sees two superstars kate valdez and bastian getting married before a global audience of fans before she decides to express her love for charlie a stranger in the crowd instead played by none other than owen
0: wilson how could he be ever and i'm sorry i was gonna make a bad joke what <laughs> how could owen wilson ever be a stranger in the crowd it's wow, he's yeah. just
1: standing there He's just standing in the crowd
0: He's hear wow
1: Yeah, I saw the trailer for this it's, it's, okay. Do you reckon he
0: gets sick of hearing that? Like, people surely say it when probably. they pass him sure. Wow, it's wow, Owen Wilson. Wow, it's Owen Wilson <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh my god, I've got to do that That's my life goal now I want to, see it's Owen to meet Owen Wilson And be like, wow, it's Owen Wilson Probably punchy, probably end up with the nose as bad as him <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god Bloody shots fired right to the nose Jesus And finally we have Drive My Car which is playing at Luna this week and sees an aging, widowed actor seeking a, f- uh, a chauffeur, excuse me, and which uh, leads to him teaming up for a 20 year old girl, and which the two develop a special relationship. I'm hearing great things about this film. Hi Buzz.
0: Exciting.
1: Exciting. You know what? I, let me quickly check. Because this I'm pretty sure this isn't the shortlist for the uh, international, uh, international feature mm. of the Oscars. Oscar nominations announcement date. Um excuse me while I look this up. 20 Oh, 27th of March. No, that's the awards. When the hell do the nominations come out? That's really annoying. See what How many? What's going on?
0: What where are the like the nominations? Oh, here
1: we go. Nomination to be announced February 8th. Yeah, we had a whole cool conversation that's, about this. Did we? Did we? Well, that's in like that's like tomorrow.
0: <laughs> So stay tuned next week on yeah. the show. We'll be talking about the shortlist for that one. There is a I, lot of catch-up between this and like Worst Person in the World, right?
1: Um, there's a few. There's honestly a and, few. And um,
0: what's the other one? Uh Flea.
1: Yeah, I'm hearing great things about Flea. That's in documentary as well. So that's pulling a bit of a, a Honeyland mm. effect from a couple of Oscars ago. Honey big, I it's a big snub. I honeymoon. know. Great. For, well, we've got two nominations. Yeah, but uh, it, yeah, they no, didn't win. But um, I think Fasama should have won. Wait, did Fasama win? No, it was bloody. American Factory which to be fair that was a yeah. good doco too it was but Fosama was um, absolutely phenomenal what a documentary yeah I wish I'd caught it no, there's still time I'm sure somewhere it's out on DVD actually I've seen it
0: around just, just hanging out but I'm running out of shelves for DVDs
1: yeah. oh well you know what? I'm glad you mentioned that, Zeke my thing arrives tomorrow my new bookshelf
0: oh there's a lot of stuff happening tomorrow
1: I know it. so there you go there's a lot on um, the bookshelf all the, the DVDs down there on the floor <laughs> they're gonna find a new home i got so many DVDs. They're doing in. pretty well with keeping them up, though. Yeah, they're doing all right. Is well, I it,
0: just haven't touched that's them in uh, four that's, weeks. That's all for new releases, isn't it? That's it. That's everything coming well, out this week. We're not catching any of those next week on the show. No. We're actually continuing our Jane Campion uh, watcher, watching spree. Watcherama. I was going to say discussion, but that. Discussion...
1: Watcherama?
0: Yeah. Bam,
1: bam. Bam, bam. It's
0: Futurama. <laughs> <Great> um, <show. laughs> Jake, what are we watching?
1: <laughs> Next week in the show, we're watching The Power of the Dog.
2: It's just a man. Only another man.
1: Domineering Rancher responds with mocking cruelty when his brother brings home a new wife and her son until the unexpected comes to pass. Now, Zeke, you've seen this film already. I saw it like a month ago. Does the unexpected come to pass, or or, or is the logline lying to
0: me? I don't know. you're yeah, gonna find out next week on the show, buddy. Oh, well, you know what? You've got to find out truly what is so powerful about that dog.
1: And, I know. You know, it's funny. When I saw... Obviously, I saw it last night in Soho twice the weekend it came out. So, with mm-hmm. you and I saw it um, with Blake and Steven. And that was the first time the three of us had seen, like, The Power of the Dog, like, a poster for it. And we were just making so much fun. We like, oh, The Power of the Dog, that sounds stupid. And then it was like, oh, it's a Jane Campion film. And that's probably the front-runner for Best Picture next year. It's like that, isn't it? It's always like... Yeah. yeah with Benedict Cumberbuns. Benedict Cumberbums, yeah. And Todd from Breaking Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirsten Dunst and Kirsten Dunst yeah which I'm hearing
0: she's great in it from Spooderman
1: yeah from (laughs) Spooderman it's her main thing and Marie Antoinette (laughs) yes
0: no worries well thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideship Podcast I was Zeke I was Jake we'll catch you next week with the power of the dog woof woof